All right. Um, so chapter 9 is entitled, Concerning the Trials Arising from a Keenly Sensitive Nature. Um, this chapter was, it's a short chapter, but it was, I found it to be a little bit um, challenging on, all right, so where's he really going with this? Um, what, what's the fruit we're, we're wanting to glean from this chapter? And I, and I think um, I've been able to do that, to present it this morning. And then chapter 14 is entitled, On the Proper Order of Faith and Experience. Uh, I believe the main message of these two chapters, 9 and 14, is regarding a person's feelings and where they should fall in order of proper influence. So we'll get into that. And then we'll do chapters 12 and 13. So we should have time. Um, the author explains um, in chapter 9, it says, There are sometimes seasons in the life of the believer when after days of quietness, there comes a combination of perplexing, annoying, and peculiarly trying circumstances. As if the ordinary perplexities of a whole week or month were put into a few hours. And this, too, just when the spirit feels less able to bear them. I, my wife likes to say sometimes, um, or remind of instances where she prays and says, Lord, I, okay, this is it, right? And then, nope, there's, there's another one on top of it. That's kind of what he's getting at here. But he's also, but he's doing it from an instance where, you know, a focus on a certain characteristic of certain believers, those who are keenly sensitive. Um, well, these, these instances where, are, where we might say that Murphy's Law is being put into effect, um, which states anything that can go wrong will go wrong. Um, admittedly, that is a negative view of things, and it's um, not a view that the believer should embrace, except for you know, the exceptional jest here and there. Um, but no, a believer should be should be seeing these trying circumstances as another disciplining agent used by God to carry out his purposes. His purposes in creation and his purposes in your life as a sanctifying agent. You know, again, something we've been talking about for a while now. now these trying circumstances, what do they do? You know, one of their purposes is to make us long for heaven and to hate the evil of the world, the corruption of the world and its influences in our lives. You know, I hate the enticements of the world that make us want to gratify the flesh. Um, well, the author focuses his discussion in chapter 9 um, on the person that he describes as someone who's possessing, again, a, a keenly sensitive nature. Keenly sensitive to these trying circumstances. Such a person that he describes as keenly sensitive. Uh, you could say this is a person who has a tendency to become depressed. A tendency to be on top of the mountain. Uh, this is a person who probably tends to swing between different strong feelings and emotions back and forth. 
um, more, he explains that such keenly sensitive believers, they tend to possess three what he calls strongly marked peculiarities. Basically, strongly marked traits. First one he talks about is, well, some keen sensitiveness. Um, and you would could I think of it this way. This is a person compared to most that is just more affected by his or her environment. Okay? Keenly sensitive to those things happening around them and to them. Not just to them, but also around them. Secondly, uh, a, a person who possesses a deep feeling about things, more than most people do, just a, a very deep feeling. Uh, they could be perhaps a bit morose at times, but generally they're more thoughtful than most as well. Um, and then thirdly, another trait is they possess much firmness of purpose. Okay, These are traits that he is talking about in certain believers. Uh, this much firmness of purpose would be someone who tends to, you know, they, they generally tend to follow through, follow through on their promises and follow through on their threats as well. Okay? Uh, there's commitment there. Well, he goes on to explain that these personality traits, well, that, frankly, they can cause sometimes an utter, unutterable agony of soul or, on the other hand, through grace, unusual and unutterable peace and joy in the Lord and make them, and this is important, make them in a significant way faithful in service to Christ beyond most other Christians. Okay, they're, they're more dialed in on a feeling side of things, okay? Now there, I believe, is a good deal of latitude here that we should consider among the spectrum of who would be described as someone who tends to be this way. Um, that's why I think it's beneficial for us to talk about it, um, something to address here, because I think many, many of us fall on this spectrum one spot or another. Well, if a person is of the more sensitive type, um, again, prone to feel and think deeply about things more than most, uh, and is serious about acting on their whatever they're thinking about at the moment, then feelings can make this person endure things many of us would find too, too uncomfortable. Again, thinking about what's the purpose of feelings in the first place. Well, they are a gift, and they are a part of who we are in our creation made in God's image that um, is supposed to come behind us and motivate us, encourage us, right? Um, and a, a person of deep feeling can endure more than most people. Uh, for example, there are those who are especially gifted in consoling other people. Um, you know, these, these people, they sense more than others an uneasiness in others around them. Um, and it, it tends... You know, also whatever hurts are going on around them, you know, or if someone's hurting, and it, and, it's, and it affects them as well on some level. Uh, they are uh, truly a, a peculiar beauty uh, in each local church that we should all hope to possess because they are such great ministers to, to hurting people. 
uh, to people that need consoling. We are all called to, to be caring and loving. Um, we are to be able and willing to console as God leads us. Um, and we see a brother and sister in need in that way. But there's simply just some that outshine others in this good work. And praise God for them and God's use of them. You know, have you ever known anyone like this in your own life? Um, you know, a, a sweet, gentle soul that was often helping others. Uh, they could care very deeply about things regarding others as if they were even experiencing it for themselves. You know, maybe for some people it's a grandmother, maybe it's someone in their church, um, in this church. They are a blessing, but a, a point that Moore is making or trying to make, I would say, is that this, this gifted person like this must make extra sure that he or she is ensuring that they remain well-grounded in holy things because of their keen sensitivity to their, to their environment. They're going to be more affected by these things. Now, because... Um, being led by their feelings for them, again, that are especially dialed into them, it can cause them great harm if they're ignorant of essential um, doctrine in Scripture and if they are given to a lack of self-control. Now, we all should be doing this. We all should be, you know, wise and knowledgeable of the doctrines of the teachings of the word and practice self-control but again the focus here is on those that are very sensitive and led by their um, that they should not be led by their feelings well folks like this not while they're not under control their fleshly tendencies they, they tend to swing from pole to pole um, when experiencing a trying circumstance um, and one of the points he makes is it's going to start to drive some inconsistent pattern of living in them, um, wrong believing and wrong thinking. And he, it'll cause a lot of anguish, you know, mental anguish, soul anguish. Um, and because this, what's happening often is the spirit's being resisted because in, instead they're following their feelings. Now, this person can be, even sometimes you could think of them as a sanctified Jekyll and Hyde at times when they're not under control. You know, self-control and being well-grounded well in the world, these are essential to those that are keenly sensitive, that they would thrive spiritually. Well, when I was, when you're reading through chapter 9, it does seem like the author has someone in mind when he's talking about this, uh, some that, that fits this picture that he's describing. Um, again, I think many, if not most of us, can fall into this category at times um, where you're just being led um, incorrectly. You're being led by your feelings. Um, and if you aren't grounded in the word, let's say you, even for a, a period of time in your life, you certainly can't trust your conscience at times um, and you can be swung back and forth it is a time of confusion and a time of doubt 
Um, so he wants to warn us about these things. That when facing these trying circumstances, and for those especially that are, are very sensitive uh, to their feelings, that they, they keep them in check, their feelings in check, and they're, they're devoted to prayer and resting on God's word. Because um, knowing and not being ignorant of the truths taught in Scripture can keep them from you know, again, being very motivated in the wrong and led in the wrong way by their feelings to offer bad counsel. Um, and um, so I, I think there's somewhere where we can all benefit from this, but that is especially more for those who are keenly sensitive souls. I, I've known a few, um, and they, and it is a time of, they're often struggling mentally because of that. They don't know what to believe sometimes. Um, so, again, being devoted in prayer and resting on God's word. Overall, uh, Thomas More, in his book, he, he reminds that the wise thing to do for all of us is to prevent our feelings from leading us. But it's important that this, to know that this doesn't mean that we ignore our feelings. In fact... Uh, more, he reasons that it would be treacherous to ignore your feelings. For example, in the first place, um, you know, how would you ever truly love yourself rightly enough to want a savior in Jesus if you ignored your feelings? You know, your, your feelings of yourself and about yourself were utilized by God to draw you to Christ. Uh, you're feeling guilt. You're feeling shame over your sin, and you're feeling for wanting being to be saved from the wrath to come. That was utilized by God in drawing you to himself where the grace of Christ is found. So we're not to ignore our feelings. They just need to be under control and, and subservient to, um, to you know, a, a prayerful life, subservient to uh, uh, obedient of the scriptures, and you know, acting um, uh, intellectually about these things. Our feelings can be a great impetus to progress and change, and that's think one of the points that he makes. You know, some of these folks um, that are like this, um, keenly sensitive, um, you know, believe deeply about things. Um, have a deep feelings about things, rather, um, and um, are just kind of de really deliberate about their things. They're, they're, they follow through on their promises and threats. God uses those people in a very special way to, to go and do things that, again, most of us or many of us wouldn't want to do. We would cower from it. More rights, he says, as he continues on, uh, he says, pleasant experiences, comfortable feelings, and powerful realizations, desirable though they be, are never obtained by being made the chief object of pursuit and desire, but result from a, li a living faith on the Lord Jesus as he is made known in his word as the salvation and strength and joy of his people. So it's at this point in his book, more he's shifting from a discussion that's mostly focused on the proper place of feelings in 
um, um, how we should be ordering things in terms of uh, making sure we are grounded in God's word. But now he wants us to understand and think about, all right, how, what's the proper order of where we put feelings? Well, if we're going to utilize these things, how, how should we be thinking about that? Um, he's taking a step back and wanting to look at the, the bigger picture of faith, the bigger picture of our ex- experiences that we have. And there is a proper order of things on how we're supposed to react to it. And that's what he's talking about uh, mostly in chapter 14. Well, he's saying that, the, that as a good, as these pleasant experiences and as good as these comfortable, comfortable feelings are, um, there are greater things that we should first be seeking. Those greater things are being faithful to the Lord and to his will, his will for all things. Um, and that's precisely what Jesus told the crowds on the Mount, on the Sermon on the Mount, when he was teaching them not to be anxious about having things that you need, um, things that will most likely make you feel better, things that will make you feel more comfortable. He told them that instead, instead of seeking those things first, he said, seek those, uh, he's, well, he says in Matthew 6, verse 33, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and these things will be added unto you. you know, we, we make a big mistake when we get things out of order, and we're pursuing those good feelings and those comfortable circumstances out of order. Moore argues that the truth um, about this, what, what's most important is if, if you are putting Christ and his kingdom first in your pursuits, then these pleasant experiences, these comfortable feelings, they're sure to come. Now, even, even if persecution exists, which clearly is not pleasant or comfortable, there is still a peace that can be known resting on Christ in those trying circumstances. If we get it, it out of order here and we're pursuing the benefit first, um, we're not going to be pursuing Christ first like we should in his kingdom. Now, who really wants to argue against the spiritual joy that, that one may feel if they have withstood the test of faith? That feels good, doesn't it? When you know that you have had victory over sin and, or some trying circumstance that came by. That, that, that's a, a very encouraging feeling that we get to enjoy. But it's because we are first obedient. Um, so based on our own experience, we know that getting our priorities out of order usually does re- result in some magnitude of regret. Um, more, he emphasizes this. He's saying, it is a great mistake to seek comfort and assurance from feeling instead of faith. And to walk in the daily path under the power of feeling instead of faith and to endeavor to overcome indwelling sin by the influence of feeling instead of by faith. Now, some believers have made for themselves a wreck by an unhealthy longing for feeling, first and foremost. 
I think we all have done this. But as I hinted at earlier, um, what more is kind of addressing here is um, there are positive insights regarding our feelings that should be protected. Now, that our religious life depends upon, as he puts it, a proper feeling as it's influenced by a living faith, by its guided, when it's guided by scripture. He argues um, that the true spiritual order is first knowledge. Right, you gotta know what you believe. And there, there's the believing, what you know. So first knowledge, then faith. And then afterwards, what he calls a realizing experience. Or better, um, afterwards, a spiritual experience that is felt and one that's desired. Yeah, and if that order is reversed by trying to take joy in the gospel before you believe the gospel, you want to, you know, which is possible and happens, then what happens is you end up having a person that's confused, a person that is riddled with doubt, and they're distressed in their mind. In fact, this is often what happens when these poor individuals described by Jesus as being the ones whose, whose seed was scattered on the rocks. Um, when they hear the word, they receive it with joy. But they have no root. They believe for a while, and in time of testing, they fall away. You know, they are excited about what they are now professing. And, and they want to hear more. They want to learn more. They want to tell other people about it. But when their faith is tested to see if it's genuine, they fall away for lack of true belief, a true belief from the core of their being. That's the seed scattered on the rock. And that's someone who's believing the gospel, or rather taking joy in the gospel before they're believing it. Pursuing first a joy of satisfying feeling is wanting a joy of circumstances. Now, and when satisfying circumstances, when those are changed, when they're removed, then what happens? The, the joy of the believer ceases. Whereas if his joy were in the Lord, then there's not going to be a circumstance that can take that joy away. Getting these things in proper order. Um, these are smaller details in our spiritual life, in our sanctifying uh, life, that we tend to not give as much emphasis as we should. Keeping these things in proper order. All right, well, chapter 8, um, I'm sorry, chapter 12, slide 8, um, is on concerning self-love. It's a, another short chapter here. Um, so what do you think of when you consider the love of self? What comes to your mind? Down. Yes, it's not good. We, we you know, we, we don't, we're being taught that, you know, this is not something we should be pursuing, a love of self, because we're already pretty d good at doing that. Um, we usually consider the love of self to be a problem, um, but more 
he takes a brief moment to give it a more fair assessment. All right? He writes, um, he says, sensitive watchfulness over and godly jealousy of self within due bounds are a positive Christian duty. Love of self within due bounds is a positive Christian duty. Well, first, a couple things I want you to notice here, and I have them underlined. Notice that he said a godly preference to self should be within due bounds. You know, we typically, again, frown upon a love for self because our nature tends to take things of the flesh way too far. Um, um, into the bound of sin, into areas of selfishness. But um, he also said here, and the second thing I underline, uh, is that a preference for a love of self is a positive Christian duty. Now how is this, how can this be a, a positive Christian duty? Any thoughts? Yes. Very good. That's right. Um, and that's that's what he's that's partly what he's getting at here. That's largely what he's getting at here. In fact, um, it is a duty for a Christian because a godly love for self entails self-preservation. You know that'd be something that we're clearly called to do in a godly way. And one point he makes here, this is most greatly seen in this sincere asking, what must I do to be saved? Well, you're not going to ask that question if you don't love yourself. In fact, um, Moore writes, he says, no sinner ever seeks to be saved because of love to God or a desire to please God, but really from a self-love and a desire for self-preservation. And the gospel meets this desire and fully satisfies it. I'm not going to try to argue about the point of the order of salutis, right, when um, here. But, you know, we are haters of God before we are converted and regenerated. Before that spirit does that work on our part. But we, we hear this truth and we're afraid of these things. Yes, Jr. go ahead. Yep. 
Right, yeah, and we're gonna, I, I briefly talk on that a little bit here in a second, or he does, and um, um, so I'll get to that. But yes, good observation, because you should be looking at both sides when you analyze these statements. Uh, other ways that we see love of self instructed in scripture is in a man loving his neighbor, right? Christ commands that we should love our neighbors as ourselves, right? And that's the second greatest commandment. You know, fulfilling the second table of the law, commandments five through 10, it requires a love for neighbor. And we know how to love our neighbor when we understand what it truly means to God in a godly way, loving ourselves. We should want to see our neighbor to be fast in the Lord, to be kept in the Lord as we desire ourselves to be. And that's because we are, love ourselves. And we enjoy the, the, the benefit that there is in the unity in Christ. That's from a love of self that God has given. He says on, in this chapter, he says, another legitimate manifestation of self-love is do care for our health, as you were noting there, Nikki. Do, health, do care for our health and comfort as we pass on day by day through life. Um, and you noted, you hit on some of those things, Nikki. Um, you know, one of the things that first came to mind is I need to have a salad every once in a while um, if I really am going to love myself. It does mean sometimes as basic as that. you got to be healthy here. But what he's really getting at here is something that J.R. was starting to touch on here. We need to denounce any practice of asceticism that seeks to deny self for the purpose of mortifying our bodies when what are we supposed to be doing? We're supposed to be mortifying the flesh, which means to be mortifying sin, not our bodies. You know, punishing yourself for sin that you have taken to God in a humble confession by, your, by and then distancing yourself from his means of grace, from the preached word, from the read word, from prayer, that's wrong. You know, so often that happens. We've, we've failed. And we don't go to the Lord. We don't feel worthy to come to the Lord. Well, Apart from Christ, we never are. But it is such wrong thinking that the devil would love to keep you in. And that is a hatred of self being practiced there. It is the opposite of what we should be doing when your soul, after dealing and wrestling with sin and coming to the Lord, is in such a humble and fragile state. It makes no sense to punish yourself indiscriminately when God has forgiven. Now, what this doesn't mean, this doesn't mean that we should not take every opportunity to show ourselves repentant, as the Apostle Paul commends us to do in 2 Corinthians 7. Making, going in, in, to the nth degree if necessary, but depriving your soul and body of what God has approved for building up, well, that's, that's just wrong thinking. You need building up when wrestling with sin. So don't distance yourself from the Lord. You know, confess it. Trust 
And if it's sincere, trust his forgiveness. He is a loving father more than we can, more than we imagine, rightly. Self-love sees the need for Jesus and runs to him. In all matters. Um, other varying reasons, um, you know, start like, for varying reasons like starving themselves, deny themselves of proper bodily rest, um, repressing natural feelings of the heart, not allowing yourself to love someone when it's clearly um, you're allowed to do so, engaging in certain work that is, um, you know, punishing to your body for some reason. I, you can just imagine what this, these are ideas he has here. Um, placing themselves in circumstances, placing ourselves in associations simply because doing so is the most trying and objectionable and painful thing to do to ourselves. Th this is also a form of asceticism, asceticism. You know, it's seeking works for justification, even though we may not understand it at the time, that's what's happening, and not the grace of Christ. So it's important that we understand this as we live through this sanctified life, as we are desiring to, to grow spiritually. Um, we cannot be ignorant about this and, and believe these wrong things. We need to always be running to Christ. To not to do so is, would be to hate yourself. Uh, more comments. He says, it is right in all things to avoid being a self-worshipper. But it is no less right to avoid being, in this sense, a self-hater. Yeah, he writes, uh, to, deny, to deny self is a duty to which all believers are called when self is in any way a hindrance to the faithful following of Christ. When we are getting in that way, there's, there's something wrong. The faithful following of Christ is truly to love self in the right way, you know, because it is most safe, it is, you're most protected from the enemy to be joined with Christ. So I, a big point of what he's making here is when we understand what truly loving self is, then we can more easily deny ourselves to do as we are called to do in scripture. You know, ready and willing to give up all things, uh, even life itself. You know, this is foolishness to the world. You know, holding on to things that are precious, but at the same time doing it with an open hand. All right, let me go to chapter 13. It's, it's a short one here, and then we'll be done. If we are to be successful... Um, and being strengthened in the Lord and being faithful to him, then it must be our constant aim in the daily life to come to him, something we must do every day. Our, our attitude, our attitude may be, it may be lousy at times. It may be lazy at times. Uh, we may be tempted to just get by on the fumes of Christ than the truth of Christ that's found in his word. When I say the fumes of Christ, like, you know, 
trying to drive around as far as you can on an empty tank of gas. No, you can't store up grace. You have to come to him daily for that. We must not be tempted, though, when we are having a bad attitude about things, when it's lousy and lazy. We've got to be tempted not to just lower our standards to meet that bad attitude. Instead, we, we must see that any bad attitude is, is modified in Christ, as painful as that may be. As painful as that may be. You know, a lot of times that means when you take that, that godly criticism from a spouse and not reacting defensively. I don't know what that's like, but I've heard about it. All right. Um, if we give way to saying, you know, if we lower our standards and we give way to saying that, well, that's just the way I am. It's just how I am. And then be satisfied with a lower standard for obeying the Lord. Then what are we doing? We're living to please ourselves. That's what's happening. Um, we're not living to please God. Now, we must keep a watchful and a prayerful eye on ourselves, which is nothing more than self-examination. To see how well we are in the faith, just like what we do before we take the Lord's Supper. Now, more comments. He says that no believer fully knows what spirit he is of in any of his actions. Even in his best, so much is there a mixture of flesh in all he does. Now, we don't obey perfectly. We don't love perfectly this side of heaven. All the more than we need our Lord's intercession in our lives. You know, Christ, he takes our imperfect obedience, our imperfect obedience, and he makes it acceptable service unto God. You know, he, he's pleading. In that office as priest, he's pleading for the acceptance of the good that we, that we do to God. And he does it for his own sake. God's not going to deny anything for the sake of his son. And he pleads for forgiveness for the imperfect, even sin-stained service that we perform for his own sake because we belong to him. So, wrapping up here, the, the nature of this life is to grow. It's to develop. It's not to... Um, become stagnant. We must grow spiritually to make successful warfare. It says more. If not growing, then you're going to be losing in some sort of compromise, somehow, in a compromise for a stagnant spiritual life. All right, so that closes us out of part two. Uh, went a little bit over. Thanks for your patience there. Um, I hope you're enjoying this study as much as, as I have been. A lot of good truths. Again, you know, I would encourage you to be reading along. Apparently Nikki has been because she just basically quoted the chapter, one of those chapters on what it means uh, to how you can properly love yourself. But get it. It's in the, the books available also in the bookstore if you'd like it. But um, um, solid ground books produces it.